sight. In this radiant epiphany, we hear the classic story. Hear the word of the Lord in the second chapter of Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us, who know you now by faith, to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And a throwback to the classic movie Nosferatu, Ivor Novella gets nervous when coins are inserted into the meter, the meter for the lights, and the light begins to shine. In this movie, The Lodger, and similarly in Jamaica Inn, Alfred Hitchcock portrays light as detrimental to goodness. In Jamaica Inn, the removal of this clifftop beacon light leads to the deaths of many sailors who are shipwrecked or murdered. Also in that movie, Hitchcock plays off another Nosferatu theme, the fear of daylight. Nosferatu was a German film that was a blatant ripoff of Bram Stoker's Dracula. As a matter of fact, the family later sued, and courts made sure that almost all the copies of Nosferatu were burned. But like any good piece of media that's been banned, a few made it through and you can still find pieces of it lurching on the internet. And Hitchcock, knowing the popularity of this movie in his time and sort of the energy around its banning, was able to play with this notion that daylight could be something that could be feared. 
by those who sought evil, that is. But in Michael Walker's book on Hitchcock's motifs, he makes clear that Hitchcock doesn't settle for a simple understanding of light and darkness. And maybe it's because he sensed that light wasn't necessarily good or bad by itself. It's a complicated relationship that we have with light, one that continues to defy the definitions of science. And while our relationship to light goes back many, many eons, it is most certainly the protagonist on Epiphany. Remember that Joseph in Matthew 1 is going to throw some shade on Mary after discover, discovering she's pregnant. But Joseph hears a voice that reminds him of his true identity and follows the angel's advice and marries this Mary and names the son Yeshua, the Lord saves. And the little light begins to glow. And then sometime, who knows when or how, or really if ever, but somehow in our story, astrologer, scholar, philosopher types, we'll say three of them because the Bible never says, these folks discover a star, these magi. Maybe it was like that orange-red Betelgeuse, that right shoulder of Orion, the ninth brightest star in our sky. I always think of it because of our light pollution is sort of the left arm from my perspective. And Betelgeuse has recently grown dimmer and it's caused alarm because Betelgeuse, we know from science, is sometime in the next 100,000 to a million years going to supernova. And it's possible when Betelgeuse supernovas, it will be as bright as the moon. What a sight that will be to see. Maybe that's what these magi saw. But regardless, the magi follow this light and they present the gifts, these symbolic enlightened gifts. And if you're not understanding the gifts in Matthew's time, he's trying to hit you over the head to really shine a bright spotlight so you can see what these mean for his Christology. Gold, because he is a descendant of the house of David. He's a king. Frankincense, because this child born in the manger is a deity, a god. Myrrh is used to anoint the body after death because, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to die. And then the Magi go home happy, right? Alas, the journey is more complicated and filled with shadow. On the way there, they had encountered Herod, who wants the threat of power to his puppet king lifestyle. He wants that threat destroyed. He says, oh, come back, Magi, tell me, and I want to make sure I come and pay him homage, too. After the Magi meet Jesus, they receive the message that's on the image on your bulletin cover. This message from the angels that tells them that Herod wants to kill the child. The Magi get away, but Herod is determined to eliminate this threat. And the rest of Matthew 2, which never gets read in church very often, is when Herod massacres the infants in and around Bethlehem for miles. And the light of the world, Jesus, is told in a dream as well. 
and flees to Egypt, a refugee. So the light of the world comes into being in a stable. The light of the star shines to lead the Magi there. And the light of an angel prepares Jesus and the Magi in order to stay away from the evil of Herod. Light is all good. Praise the light. Wondrous light. And light has wonderful connotations in the Bible. This is one of the most ancient metaphors because it's one of the most universally experienced phenomena, right? The Bible says in Romans that the night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In the classic Mass Requiem text used by the Catholic Church for a thousand years, it says, May light eternal shine upon them, O Lord, with thy saints forevermore. Eternal rest give to them, O Lord. Let perpetual light shine upon them. For some of your more modern ears, you may remember Earl Scruggs in that classic bluegrass symphony. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Oh, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Hallelujah. Light is good, dark is bad. Praise the Lord that we see the light. But what are we really seeing when we say that? Light is a lot more complicated than I thought it was. The history of physics is replete with the sort of back and forth conversation really just on the nature of it. Is light a wave? No, because then it doesn't pass the two-slit experiment. Or a particle. Oh, so it is a wave because of the two-slit experiment. Oh, but it needs to be a particle in order to pass this other kind of experiment. And then comes quantum mechanics who says, well, actually, light is somehow both a wave and a particle at the same time. Oh, and by the way, light is also just this tiny sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum of the photons that we and our eyes are able to see. But similar stuff right now is coming out of the phones in your pockets, out of our watches and our Wi-Fi routers and our cell towers. Light is all around us. But what we can actually see is rather limited by our evolutionary biology. But even in that tiny spectrum of electromagnetic energy that we call light, we have figured out how to misuse and abuse it. Any of us with a cell phone in our pocket right now can take it out and adjust the brightness levels on our phone because we know that screens can often be too bright or not bright enough. And increasingly, we are understanding the dangers of too much blue light, certain levels of that tiny portion of that tiny bit of the electromagnetic spectrum that make people's bodies feel like they should be awake, which is not good when you're getting ready for bed. That's why doctors say you're not supposed to look at any screens with blue light before at least 20 minutes before bedtime. Now, we're, we're finding ways to block the light, to limit it, to control it. On your phone, you could press night shift, as many of you do, or have it automatically come on to try to block some of that blue light in the spectrum to help you sleep better. Apple released in its latest operating system a dark mode. In this dark mode, the light background with black text changes to a dark background with light text. And a year or two ago, 
I wonder why I kept getting headaches by lunchtime, whenever and only when I came into the office. <laughs> and so I started reading about the dangers of too much blue light, and I purchased some blue light blocking glasses. As Julie and others on staff can attest, the first pair looked terribly dorky. So this is the improvement, sadly. But now you can come by the office any day of the week, and typically I'll be wearing these very stylish glasses that to you look sort of odd on the outside, but to me makes everything look a little yellow. And you can try it on after worship if you'd like to. But my headaches went away as soon as I started wearing these. The eye strain and headaches that are being seen by physicians all across the country from folks who stare at screens all day is being slowly eliminated by these wonderful little gadgets. Now, no one's for sure whether the dark mode we've introduced on computers and phones is helping us very much. Night shift and blue light blocking glasses are increasingly popular for those who stare at computers. The least of which, by the way, are teens and 20-somethings who are players in the fastest growing sports franchises in the country. Esports, computer gamers who now wear these things religiously when they play because they understand the danger of too much artificial light. But while it's hard for many in our society to listen to those cries from our 20-somethings and young adults, perhaps we can understand better for the one who has wrestled with these metaphorical photons much longer. In Alfred Hitchcock's rear window, the character Jeff tries to ward off his attacker Thorwald, by blinding him with flashbulbs. And with these flashbulbs, the viewer of the movie then experiences the accompanying temporary loss of vision through some first-person point-of-view images. Maybe more accessible for many of you TV watchers by thinking of any true crime story. And in that room with the cop, there's that one solitary light, usually hanging for a very strangely poorly hung Really, they could use more tape in these stories, or duct tape or something, to make sure they can use that one light to shine artificially some brightness on there. But light can be blinding. Hitchcock understood this. Our e-gamers are understanding this. But it's even worse when it's metaphorical. Have you ever been to a church where sadness was something to be destroyed, and only happiness and light were the only things that you were allowed to feel, you may have felt what it was like, according to Barbara Brown Taylor, to be in a church that practices total solar theology. Total solar theology. The obvious problem with this kind of theology is that those who have ever felt an emotion that wasn't pure joy 100% of the time in your life you might get a hearing from the faith community when you share that emotion. Some people might listen to you a second time. But by the third and onward, folks are just going to say, well, you just need to choose to be happy. Stop living in that darkness and that sadness. Turn on the light for crying out loud. You and I know that life isn't as simple as a total solar theology. Life is hard. Suffering happens. 
Injustice abounds. Total solar theology tries to blast out the darkness with ultraviolet happiness, but anyone who's seen Pixar's Inside Out knows that when you are sad, sometimes the way to deal with the sadness is that you just have to sit with it a little bit. But it's not just about sitting with sadness. In that Pixar film, Inside Out, there is a way in which the main character, the protagonist, finds that when she actually will sit with that sadness, that darkness, she finds a more sustainable life. Something that, that carries her onward in the midst of the darkness and the pain. And it's that kind of theology, that kind of light, that Barbara Brown Taylor calls lunar spirituality. Lamenting growing up in one of those kinds of churches where she couldn't quite connect. She said, if I could have been that kind of happy all the time, I would have. There are days when I would get any, anything to share the vision of their world that they have, their ability to navigate it safely. But my spiritual gifts don't seem to include the gift of solar spirituality. Instead, I've been given the gift of lunar spirituality in which the divine light available to me waxes and wanes with the season. When I go out on my porch at night, she lives in rural Georgia, the moon never looks the same way twice. Some nights it's as round and bright as a headlight. Other nights it's thinner and the sickle hanging in my garage. Some nights it's high in the sky and other nights it's low over the mountains. Some nights it's altogether gone leaving a vast web of stars that are brighter in its absence. All in all, the moon is a truer mirror for my soul than the sun that looks the same way every day. And after I stopped thinking about all these fluctuations meant something was wrong with me, a great curiosity opened up. What would my life with God look like if I trusted this rhythm instead of opposing it? What would your life look like if you trust the rhythm of lunar spirituality instead of opposing it? Now in our Matthew, Matthewin Christmas story, we have the light of the world and we have the shining light of the star. And we won't get a light that bright until the transfiguration and the resurrection in Matthew's gospel. But notice how that light comes about. In the prophecy of Isaiah, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There had to be an overwhelming sense of darkness. There had to be something with which to contrast the light to. Too much artificial light was not good for the soul. But in the midst of the pain, for people who have seen it and walked in it, that's when the light can be really appreciated and can change our lives. John's version of the Christmas story is a little different. For those of you who went to Pastor Molly's CCPC University class a few weeks ago, when she talked about the Christmas stories, she played a trick on some of you. She asked different tables to open the four different Gospels and find the Christmas story of each Gospel. Slight problem. Only Matthew and Luke, only two of the four, have a Christmas story. Mark and John have nothing. 
Except that John has something even more compelling, I think, than Matthew and Luke's story of the baby in the manger. It's a story that Pastor Molly tells every year as he would get ready to take the, the Christ candle and to light up our room. It's a story that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. See, my friends, in order for light to work, there has to be a contrast. We have to be willing to sit and to see the darkness, to acknowledge, like Barbara Brown Taylor's lunar spirituality, that there is darkness around and that that light changes. But by noticing the way the light changes in our lives, by noticing the way that God acts in different ways, that's when we can truly appreciate the love of God and the work of the Spirit in our lives. Some days it feels like the sliver of the moon. Some days the work of God feels like the brightest star, a supernova in the sky like we've never seen before. And some days there's just nothing. That's the walk of faith. Do you think even Jesus felt brightly about the, the light of God when he was being sent as a refugee into Egypt, as Herod tried to massacre him? These are the rhythms of faith and the rhythms of our lives that we are called to accept as people of epiphany. The Greek people, the logos, was the order and the rationale for all things. And John takes that logos and says, in the logos was the word. The logos was Christ, the light and life for all people. And through that logos, we are given a chance to hope. There are other ways you can learn how to hope. There are ways that you can look to popular culture to inspire you. I myself have a couple epiphany playlists on Spotify that are inspiring me in this season. And the number one song that came about with a bunch of clergy type trying to create a Spotify playlist that wasn't too much Jesus is my girlfriend music, the wonderful song by a band you may have heard of called Earth, Wind, and Fire. You're a shining star, no matter who you are. Shine bright to see what you could truly be. Be a shining star for you to see what your life is can truly be. I hope as people of faith who are confident in the grace of Christ that we will call ourselves to look at the darkness a little more carefully, to reject a total solar spirituality, and within our lunar theology, see the light of Christ coming and going in our lives. I leave you with this poem by Pastor Steve Garnus Holmes. Confident that the graceful one is coming not in a shower of stars to startle empires, but manger humble and coming any moment. Be done with the hard armor of this world that disguises despair, that covers fear and self-doubt. The helmet of apathy and the breastplate of cynicism, the mail coat of not having to get involved, the shield of violence and domination. Instead, let this be your only armor that you shine with light. You are clothed in the beloved, not because it shields you from suffering, but because it gives you courage to love. 
In this you yourself become a sign of the coming. And indeed in this the loving one comes. Look for the light. Experience the darkness. And let Christ shine 